Thanks, everyone. It's good to see all of you this morning. Thank you for the warm welcome. My family and I are very happy to be back. We were really happy to enjoy sabbatical, but we're also really happy to see all of you. And uh, I just want to begin by saying thank you, Um, especially if you're new here. You may recognize this. We have some amazing leaders in this church. We have amazing staff. We have amazing leaders on our leadership team. And then so many of you, you help make coffee and you help set up signs and you just did so many of those little things that a church needs uh, to really just gather together in a way that's honoring to God. So thank you. When you did that, you also offered to my family and I the gift of the time that we enjoyed. So we just want to say thanks. Uh, It was an amazing gift. It was an amazing summer. Uh, And all of you uh, took part in that. I do want to give you like a very quick kind of, what did you do with your summer? Like little picture tour, because we got to do this, right? So this is our dog, Pasha. Pasha started out the summer kind of rough. She's fine now. She's okay. God renews all things. But you can see her little paw right here. She had an injury to her dew claw, so the knot thumb that dogs have. So we wrapped her up for a little while. She did wear the cone of shame. That expression on her face reflects her knowledge of, like, I am wearing the cone of shame. If you've not seen the Disney movie Up, you need to go watch it because the cone of shame is very important. But that was the start of Pasha's summer. It got better for her after that. Uh, This is us in a galaxy far, far away a long, long time ago. This is Disneyland, actually, but that is the Millennium Falcon. And that was so incredible to go to Disney and then to walk up and see, like, it's right there. Like, you, can, you can't touch it. That, don't do that. But it's right there. There's a fence around it for a reason. That was an amazing experience. This is a hike that my wife Jill and I took together uh, with the dog because her dew claw had healed at this point. This is just off of 90, one of my favorite hikes. And it was just an amazing experience for us to share it. Our kids were at day camp all day, which God bless whoever invented day camp. It is a glorious, glorious thing. And then this is a really important moment for me. This is in Texas, and I'm visiting my family. Uh, Many of you know I have a deep and abiding love for queso. Queso is chili con queso. It's a Tex-Mex perfection where you take a tortilla chip and you dip it in melted cheese, and your soul comes alive. So this is me at one of my favorite Mexican restaurants in Texas with a sign that I just need to have in my office or maybe just around me at all times, like, just, yes, just say yes to the queso. Mas queso, por favor. Like, yes, I will have another round. So that was very important to me, and you can tell how happy I am. This is the final picture, because it's just going to get self-indulgent if I keep showing pictures after this. Uh, this is our family together. So my wife, Jill, and I, and then our three kids, Will, Hadley, and Millie. This is at the Rotunda at the State Capitol in Boise, Idaho. We spent a week there. Uh, I'll tell the story another time, but we were talking to a gentleman who turned out to be the Attorney General of the state of Idaho, and we got to tour his office. That was pretty incredible. But I share this picture as kind of the last bit of this part of the sermon, because this is what gave me the greatest joy in the time that I had off. We got to do really cool stuff. I mean, glory to God, we got to go to Disney, we got to be in Boise, we got to ride bikes. I mean, it was an amazing summer. But really and truly, The thing that stood out to me, the thing that I've shared with people is, I was just so grateful to have uninterrupted time with my family. And in doing that, I started to learn a new lesson about time that I want to share with you guys as we think about the sermon today. We're talking about gathering, we're talking about worship, we're talking about why it's important for us to worship together. And so one of my joys this summer was to finish, because I started a long time ago, a book called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. 
Now, 4,000 weeks is the amount of time that you and I probably have on this earth if we live to be 80 years old or so. You have 4,000 weeks. That is your life. And the person that wrote this book uh, is a, a British journalist. He used to write for The Guardian. He actually wrote a column making fun of time management and self-help stuff. And then he started to get into it and realized he actually had kind of an interesting perspective. But his contention in this book, and I would recommend it to anybody, is your time is not actually best measured in terms of a utilitarian sense. In other words, if you're like me, if you value efficiency in your time and in your schedule, that can actually trip you up from the greatest way to use your time. His argument is, is that time is a communal good. You know, you remember economics from like high school and college, there's goods and services, time is a good, time is something you're meant to use well, but a communal good is something that is best experienced in context with other people. There will always be ways to use our time where we need to do it individually, like your deep work or your thoughtful things or when you're putting your kid to bed at night. Those are things that you're just going to kind of do on your own. But to deeply enjoy and be satisfied in your experience of time, this author argues you need to have a communal view of it. And he shares an example actually from the history of the Soviet Union about what happens when time becomes too utilitarian for us when it becomes used for ends that supposedly were going to be good, but actually weren't. The historian Clive Foss has described the nightmare that transpired when the leadership of the Soviet Union, gripped by the desire to transform the nation into one blazingly efficient machine, set out to re-engineer time itself. Joseph Stalin's chief economist, Yuri Loren, concocted what seems in hindsight like a ludicrously ambitious plan to keep Soviet factories running every day of the year with no breaks. Imagine that, work that never ends. Imagine that, a company that wants you to be there 24-7. Imagine, I mean, what a shocking thing, right? Henceforth, he announced in August of 1929, so the United States is in the midst of the Great Depression, World War II had not yet broken out, that a week in Russia would no longer be seven days, but five days. So get your head around that. Someone calls you and they say, hey, your week is now five days, four days of work, one day of rest. That's a shift. Crucially, the idea was that not all workers would follow the same calendar. Instead, throughout Russia, they would be divided into five different groups identified by a color, yellow, green, orange, purple, red. So you're the yellow group over here, you're the orange group over here, so on and so forth each of which would then be assigned a different four-day work week and one-day weekend so that operations would never have to cease even for a day. Meanwhile, Soviet authorities argued there'd be numerous benefits for the proletariat, for all you people here on the ground, more frequent days off, less overcrowding of cultural institutions and supermarkets. But the main effect for ordinary citizens of the USSR, as the writer Judith Shulevitz has explained, was to destroy the possibility of a social life. She goes on, it was a simple question of scheduling. Two friends assigned to two different calendar groups would never be free to socialize on the same day. So if Joe is in the purple group and Gary is in the orange group and their calendars don't line up, they can't see each other. It's not going to work. Husbands and wives were supposed to be assigned to the same group, but they often weren't, placing intense stress on families and for obvious reasons, Sunday religious gatherings were disrupted too, neither of which posed a problem from Moscow's point of view, since it was part of communism's mission to undermine rival power centers of family and church. As one worker rather daringly complained to the official newspaper Pravada, what are we to do at home 
If the wife is in the factory working, the children are in school, and no one can come and see us. What is left to do but go to the public tea room? What kind of life is that? When holidays come in shifts, and not for all workers together, it's no holiday if you have to celebrate it by yourself. The restructured work week, this five-day work week, four days to work, one day to have a break, the restructured work week persisted in some form until 1940. Ten years of people not having the freedom to line up their time with each other. And get this, it was abandoned in 1940 because of problems it caused with the maintenance of machinery. Not because it was tearing people's families apart. Not because it was destroying their concept of time. No, because the stupid machinery wouldn't work that often and that frequently. But this was not before the Soviet government had inadvertently demonstrated this and catched this, how much the value of your time comes not from the sheer quantity that you have, but whether you're in sync with the people you care about most. Are you in sync with the people you care about most? Have you lined up and ordered your time in such a way that this is a place where you experience that? This is why small groups are the heartbeat of our church. This is why being together here in this space, physically present for it, I believe is so valuable and presents such a huge challenge. We went through an incredible disruption during the COVID pandemic when we could not meet together. And what we have done is kind of default to this sense of, you know, I can watch worship when I want to, and I can see Travis's sermon later on, and all these kind of things, but I just want to say, after reading this book and reflecting in my own heart and visiting a lot of different churches this summer, I need this. I need each of you. I will wither in my discipleship to Christ, in my hunger for his mission, if this is not a place that I come to. I, I will say some more about uh, the churches that we visited this summer. I won't name names. But it is clear that the church has undergone a radical shift in the last couple years. And when you are here in worship, you remember, you feel this, if you were part of a church before, this is what I need. I need these people. I need to see them. And they will be revealing Jesus to me in a way that I simply cannot do sitting at my computer screen at my kitchen table in my jammies. And there are times and places to watch church online, and, and we can get into that in a moment, but I just want to emphasize that this communal expression of time that is so key to your life as a family, to your life with your roommates, to your life with people that you love, it needs to be a part of why we come together for worship. So we're going to talk about this in three different parts as we look at the text. We're going to set the context for the John passage that Ryan read for us. We're going to talk about the living water of the gospel and then next steps for thirsty people. So let's begin by talking about context. We're in the Gospel of John. John is the fourth gospel, the gospel written after the three synoptic gospels. If you just want to tackle something fun this fall, read through the Gospel of John. If you're a new believer and you're looking for your ways to kind of get into the scriptures, read through John with a friend. It is phenomenal. It's my favorite gospel. I love the creativity and the presentation. It's great. And in today's passage, Ryan alluded to this, Jesus is at a festival. In John chapter 7, at the beginning, he's kind of slowly starting to sort of come into the limelight. John's gospel is a gospel where Jesus is slowly revealed to be Messiah over time. And so he comes into the midst of this Jewish festival called the Festival of Booths. Now, did anybody grow up in a Jewish household? Did you celebrate the Festival of Booths growing up? Okay, I, if Stephanie was in here, she might have known a little bit about that. Picture Oktoberfest without the beer. 
The Jewish festival of booths was an annual festival in the fall. The leaves are changing colors in the ancient Near East. Everybody gets together in a city or in their temple, and they would bring all their gear to camp out for a week. They would, that was part of the festival. It was not, go get the nicest Airbnb or get the five-star hotel room. It was, go camp in the context of your neighbors in your city, bring all your food, have great meals and great parties together. But what they were doing is as a community of Jews, they were celebrating God's faithfulness to ancient Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness, when they were living in what? Tents. When they did not have a place, when they were a nomadic people, when they were forced into those 40 years of wandering, their celebration was not, oh great, we get to live in tents. Their celebration was, God has been faithful. God led us through some difficult times, including when we had to live as nomads. And so Jesus stands in front of this crowd <clears throat> who are gathered together at the temple. It's a celebratory mood. They've been having a great time all week long. And here comes this carpenter that they don't really know. And so I want to share a piece of artwork that helps illustrate this scene. This is from a French painter named James Tissot. It's called Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which is quoting a different passage of Scripture. But I wanted to put this up here because the painter does such an amazing job of depicting the scene for us. Behind Jesus is the city. You can see it sprawling, spread out. You can see these colonnades and that kind of candy cane colored building. That's the temple. They're in the inner court of the temple where men, sorry ladies, where men were able to come and worship Jesus. There's a color contrast here. Look at the crowd. Look at the people nearest to him. If you can see their faces, there's a hunger. They want to hear what he has to say. But in contrast, there's this row of men dressed mostly in black behind him. And their body language is very different. They're doing this. They're not, they're not buying what Jesus is selling. They're the religious leaders. They're the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the one for the ones who felt like, hey, this temple is my home turf, buddy. What are you doing here? But make no mistake, this image and this passage, the reason I picked the passage John 7 to teach on as we talk about the importance of gathering is because this is a scene of worship. It is a scene of worship because worship is when we gather together with a community of people to share communal time focused on Jesus Christ. Every eye in that place is on him. There's no, there's no distractions, there's no screen, there's no nothing else. He is the center of that moment, and that is the heartbeat of our worship, friends. He's in a place designed for worship that reveals the beauty and majesty of glory and glory of God. One of my greatest joys in moving into Inglewood Press several years ago was how beautiful this space is, how wonderful it is to be in a space that's designed for worship. Jesus is holding court. The religious leaders hear him start to talk, and then they start to get angry. If you read earlier in John 7, which I would encourage you to, he's been kind of having a dialogue with them, a little bit of back and forth, and you can just feel the temperature in the setting is starting to go up a little bit. They're starting to get mad at him because he's telling him, look, you think you've been practicing the way of Yahweh. You haven't been. You're missing it. So, this celebratory mood is now transformed into something more adversarial. So imagine yourself at someone's party at their house, and all of a sudden there's a squabble over in the corner, and then the squabble starts to spread. You know this feeling when the mood in the room starts to change, and you're going, wait, I thought we were here for a party, and now, now it's getting uncomfortable. Something weird's happening over here. Jesus is in the middle of that, 
And what does he do as the temperature starts to go up in the room? He starts yelling at people. And, and I love this about Jesus because is he really concerned in this moment about how the people in front of him feel? Is he going to do, you know, sort of a survey or a poll to see what he should do next? No, no, no. He starts proclaiming the truth. I'll come back to this in just a moment. I meant to have it. There we go. This is what Jesus proclaims. This is from Dale Bruner, a Bible scholar. He used to teach at Whitworth University. Now he's at Fuller Seminary. His commentary on John is beautiful. If you just want to pick it up, it's amazing. Dale translates the passage this way. He says this, If anyone is thirsty, please come here to me. Move toward me and drink away. The person trusting me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will come pouring out of that person's innermost being. Come to me. He's yelling this at people that don't want to listen to him. He's yelling this at his disciples. He's yelling this at people who've never seen him before. And then he starts talking about rivers of living water. What is that? Well, there's actually not a passage in the Old Testament that uses that exact phrase. There are passages in Isaiah that allude to it. And this is why it was so important for him to say this to his people. There is a group of people in that audience that would not have listened to him unless they heard certain key phrases. And this was one of him. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth, a spring of water. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, rivers of living water. Something life-giving in the midst of death. This is a theme from the Old Testament. This is Jesus elevating this in front of these people. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come and buy and eat. Buy without money, without price. If you're thirsty, come to me. What's he telling them? He's telling them, you are thirsty. The scriptures have called this out since long before my time. That there is a thirst in the human heart that cannot be satiated except in me, in Messiah. Martin Luther, the great church father, says this. When Jesus says streams of living water are to flow forth, he means that the person who comes to me, Luther capitalizing Jesus as me, I shall equip not only to be refreshed and satisfied, to quench his own thirst, but also to become a sturdy earthen vessel, endowed with the Holy Spirit and with gifts that enable them to give consolation and strength to many other people and to serve them as he was served by me. Your thirst brought you here. Your thirst brought you here. It brought me here. The thirst for the living waters that is Jesus Christ. This is uh, a picture from my travels this summer. This is Vernal Falls in Yosemite National Park. It was the only waterfall that was running while I was there. And it was glorious. My friend and I hiked up and around it. How many of you have done that hike up Vernal Falls? It, it, it's a hike. <laughs> You're covering a lot of elevation. And then you can hike up to right up there by that tree and you can if you're brave, sort of look over the falls and kind of, you know, step back. It's an incredible experience. The rivers of living water, the thirst, is what has brought these people into Jesus' presence. And it's not just for them. We don't gather just to be this holy huddle. We don't gather just to say churchy words to each other and all be in agreement. We gather because we're thirsty. 
because we long for the very presence of Jesus. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is part two where we see the gospel in the midst of this particular text. He is calling people to himself. And the gospel is not go get a few things right, clean up your moral behavior, do this, vote in a certain way. The gospel is come to Jesus Christ, all you who are thirsty. Come. The way that this was impressed upon me this week is I started to think about who's in the crowd around Jesus and what have they tried that's different than the rivers of living water. If this is what Jesus is giving, what are the things that other people may have tried? Well, he's got those religious people. Remember the guys standing in the back with their arms folded? They've tried religion. They've tried keeping the rules and making sure you don't drink, smoke, or swear and like all these kinds of things. They have kept the moral aspect of the law. They're the elder brother from the story of the prodigal son. I have done everything right. They demand to be recognized for their righteousness. There's a group of people out there in that crowd who are so tired of living under the rule of the Romans, and they're looking at Jesus and they're going, oh, come on, man, like, get on your horse and get these Romans out of here. We want our lives back. We are tired of being oppressed. And then there's people walking by, maybe just outside the court because only Jews were allowed in the court. Maybe they're hearing Jesus at a distance. They're kind of far away. And maybe they're your typical Roman citizen. They are pagan as the day is long. They're into polytheism. They're into hedonism. They have a recreational sexual ethic. They are all over the place. And they're tired of it. Because it's not satisfying. Because it's not the rivers of living water. It is coming up short. What will slake the thirst of the human heart? It is the rivers of living water that flows from Jesus into his people, filling them up, as Luther said, so that it overflows into the lives of those around us. This is the gospel. Nothing else will satisfy. That is what I want for us. Do you want your thirst to be quenched at the rivers of living water? Do you want it for your spouse, for your children, for your grandchildren? Do you want it for your neighbors? Will we be a church that says, look, in all humility, the rivers of living water are here. It is not in whatever the world is telling you. It is in Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this? Three steps I would just offer to consider. Thirst, come to me and drink deeply. First, Jesus actually honors those who are thirsty. In the Beatitudes, Luke chapter 6, verse 21, he said, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is a good thing to thirst. We live in such a self-made world, an individualistic world, where it's like, oh, you're thirsty? Well, why didn't you have your water bottle with you? Why didn't you take care of that? You must be at a deficiency for having experienced thirst. No. To be thirsty is to be human. To desire communion with Almighty God. That is wired deep down in each of us. Our hearts cry out for the Lord. So bring that here. Recognize when you're in the middle of your week and you are so tired, you just changed yet another diaper, it is the middle of the night, and you are crying out for the Lord. Recognize, one, you can cry out to Him in that moment and He will meet you, and two, you need to be here. You need to be with this communal experience of time, these brothers and sisters who are going to lift you up and encourage you. Even if you've had an amazing week, you need to be here because the thirst 
that is deep down, that is within each of us, will not be satiated. Even by the best week you've ever had, even by the greatest vacation you've ever had, even by the greatest bike ride you've ever had, there will be this undercurrent where you know you need water. The living waters of Jesus. So recognize your thirst and address it appropriately. The second thing, come to me. Think again about the crowd that's gathered around Jesus. I mentioned this a moment ago. His disciples are there, so people who know they are sinners saved by grace. There are religious people with their arms folded and their dark clothes around them saying, hey, I just, I just come to church. This is just what I do. I, I do this every week. You're never going to see otherwise from me. And then there are those who are far from God. The secular, the skeptical, the ones that are like, man, you really got to prove to me that Jesus Christ is who you say he is. Like, I'm, I'm a little concerned that you're selling me a little a bill of goods here, buddy. I mentioned those three groups, and there are more groups that I can mention, because when we gather for worship, we must always remember, especially if you call this church your home, that those three groups are present in our worship. And therefore, we must always be a congregation that welcomes we must always be a congregation that says, look, there's a churchy way to explain this, but then there's the way that I can explain it that makes sense to someone who's far from God. We had the opportunity, my family and I, to visit a friend's church, uh, a church plant in Port Orchard called Kitsap House. My friend Megan is the pastor there, and they are laser-focused on reaching the least and the lost and the skeptics in Port Orchard, and they're doing it. And every bit of their service, not in a way that was annoying or contrived, but in a way that was really honoring to Christ, was welcoming those folks who maybe had never been to a church before. They did it over and over again. We're so glad you're here this morning. You know, in a moment we're going to sing together, and here's why we sing together. Here's why the church does what we do. Uh, we want to welcome you afterwards for, you know, treats, because we think being a community together is really important. Just those little steps to help people understand why they can put their feet down and relax in a place. We must always remember, church, that the presence of people in this room does not mean we are all on the same page, and it does not mean we all have the same understanding of who Jesus is. Always. And that's why we want to keep an eye out for those who might be new and welcome them and help them feel special. I will tell you, in the churches we visited this summer, it wasn't even a 50-50 split. It was like a 70-30 split. 30% welcome newcomers. 70% didn't really have a whole lot to say if you were new. My family and I could kind of breeze in and have some coffee and breeze out. Kind of a friction-free church experience. No thank you. And I'm not knocking those churches. They're in the midst of whatever they're in the midst of. But it was very stark for me as a leader in the church to go, oh boy, like how can we expect to reach our friends and neighbors if we're not even welcoming people well? graciously, kindly, as they come in our doors. The final piece is to drink. Drink deeply. And by this, I mean be here. When you are in town, be here. There, there's circumstances where people need to be online. I totally get that. And our friends that are online, I get it. Let this be the default. Let in-person, in this building, gathered worship with this community be your default. Come here. Come here. Because you need this time. You need brothers and sisters around you who are going to encourage you, ask you how your week was, sing with you, pray with you. We need it. I want this to become our default as a church. We've been through a crazy disorienting time in terms of what does it even mean to be a part of a church. I get it. And I just want to offer that encouragement, not a shaming thing, but just a, I want us to be here. I want to see you guys. 
And if that's a struggle, sometimes come talk to me because I'd really like to help you help understand where that's coming from. So we are here with people who care about us. We are here experiencing this communal time, not this separated time. Now what do we do with it? Well, for us, one of the things that we discovered uh, during the thick of COVID when we could just worship online is that it was really helpful to talk to one another. So our response time to the sermon has been a time we call breakout rooms or discussion groups. And if you're new, I'm just mentioning this for you because it can be a little uncomfortable if you're new-new to sit with a group of people and talk about a sermon you just heard from a guy you don't know with people that you've never met. So it's okay. And especially if you're new, I want to say, if you just want to sit as we break into these groups and just listen, that is totally fine. We just want you to feel welcome. But to guide our discussions in our groups, we have a couple of questions. First, share your name and a snapshot from your summer, a highlight, a moment with God, or a challenge. These are in your bulletin. And then the second one is this. When have you gone through a season where you were thirsty? Was it a spiritual thirst, emotional, physical? How did that season of thirst find resolution, assuming it did? Or how would you like to see it be resolved in the future? What are you thirsty for? How would you hope that Jesus would lead you through that. We'll go into our groups. I'll give you a few minutes warning. They'll be a little bit briefer today so that we can uh, make sure our friends at Inglewood have plenty of time for their service. But let me pray for us, and then you can turn in your groups and speak to each other. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the chance to enjoy fellowship and the continuing movement of your Holy Spirit. That's what we would ask for. As you've spoken through your word, as I pray that you've spoken through me, would you speak now through each of us in these groups so that we can hear each other illuminate your work in our lives. Help us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn your chairs around. You can lift them up. You can move them. Get into groups of no more than five, and then I'll give you a countdown uh, once we start to come to our time. Thanks.